when I joined Seven Angels, those guys are all like Christian straight edge vegans. And I'm this, you know, Canadian meat eating, uh, very different lifestyles. <laughs> Thank you so much everyone for tuning in this is another episode of the scoped exposure podcast um this has been a guest that uh i've been very excited to chat with all week um someone who's been a band that i think inarguably is in one of the most will go down as one of the most legendary and influential metalcore bands of just history in general um someone that i've gotten to play with as well and uh so without further ado i'm very excited to be welcoming jesse of misery signals and compromise to the podcast dude thank you for joining us today thanks for having me guys happy to be here absolutely so um yeah like obviously like misery signals is a band that needs no level of like introduction as far as like your guys's um you know breath as far as how much you've done over the years and there's so much history and lore that is attached to that band as well as like compromise it seems like any band that you have touched there's there's so much backstory and so much um for people to to discover when whether it's through a podcast or a documentary um so there's definitely a lot of things that we can get into there um but before we get into anything music chat related jesse we need to check some beverages for the show so what are you going to be drinking for the podcast today i just have uh straight water here today okay no uh no flavoring just straight from the tap yeah straight yeah straight not from the tap i can't drink tap water so i shouldn't say that it's 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 from the fridge but oh okay gotta be i like cold water for sure yeah cold water is definitely you know there's warm water is definitely not the move uh in any (laughs) case but tap room i i like to keep it cold myself as well are you are you like a brita man or do you have some kind of other is it in the fridge is where yeah yeah filters yeah like brita filters I, i like for sure got you so I'm also drinking water, but I have a little bit of a story as far as the Bev, uh, you know, choice today. Um, okay. So if you remember earlier in April this year, uh, Comeback at Misery Signals doing a bunch of Western Canada dates, and there was two Calgary shows, and my band Endgame played with, uh, played the first of two days. Trench at Dickens, playing, yeah, yeah. At Dickens, yes. And I was on a bit of a kick. Just hang on for one second. Guys, <laughs> either come down or I'm shutting the door. Dog check. It's a dog check, absolutely. So we were playing the first of, of two Calgary dates, and I was on a bit of a kick, um, which started uh, even a few months earlier than that, where I would jokingly put cases of liquid death in between my guitar cabs and my head and i did this at a show uh, 
in Hamilton that we played and I just had so much on deck that I was just doing it was just an on it was an obnoxious ongoing joke for a long time and I remember right. as soon as we finished playing Misery Signals is setting up to play right after and I saw you like double take on stage and you looked so confused <laughs> and I went up and it's like I'm sure you've never seen that before and you were like does this like mess with your tone or I was like no this is just just for aesthetic and you're like huh and then you walked away <laughs> and that has been just burned in my memory ever since then so um since that I'm checking a liquid death for the show so I'm a big I'm a big fan of the uh, the water in cans these days so mm -hmm. one issue for sure as a as a band guy uh, as band guys I think is that the amount of bottled water that we've had to use over the years right so right definitely tried to avoid that as much as possible by bringing you know receptacles with us and stuff but um the, the you know the liquid death and what's the other one I, there's actually a couple now <clears throat> that I've seen around Canada as well so I'm a big a big fan of those so yeah I, I was probably stoked to see that you had some liquid death and I might have been like <laughs> eyeing them up trying to get some from you because it's always a challenge for me I've, I've basically sworn off plastic bottles so I just won't use mm -hmm. them like I basically have a rule against it so right uh I always have to, you know, find some liquid death before each show. And in some there, places, some places it's really easy and some places it's, it's quite a challenge. Yeah. I think that they are starting to team up with a lot of venues as far as like being able to just to be everywhere, just their presence For sure. in those. Cause I'm the very same way. I feel like guilty that I'm like, you know, I, f I feel more guilty drinking plastic water than I do driving my car, you know, as far as like the fumes of the car versus, you know, this plastic bottle. Yeah, um, I agree. It's just, it's, it's just a very weird thing for me. But for sure. there have been times while I've been playing and I desperately need a water and I don't want to call for someone to get me uh, like, you know, whatever the, the stage yeah. water is. So I just go into the box on the side and pull one out. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, so uh, cheers to you. Cheers to Liquid you. Death, man. Cheers. Well, cheers to you primarily. But uh, yeah, dude, thanks for again for coming on. So, um, Jesse, you've done a plethora of interviews um, through throughout many, many years. It actually seemed when I was prepping for this uh, discussion, I was like, it seems that it's been a while since you've done a podcast or an interview of, of some case just within like the you know doing stuff it seemed like so many people were doing stuff over covid because there was nothing to do but For now sure. the shows have you know returned and misery signals has been out on the road a couple times it's been a while since you know there's been uh you know you on a podcast so i really appreciate you uh coming on but any new guests that i have here on the show i always like to get a bit of, a bit of context about how they just got initially put on to on the path of heavy music in general. So take me like way, way back in time, like um, when you were first discovering this stuff and, and how, you know, what tickled your fancy initially on this whole journey? Uh, so I guess connected to the water bottle thing is, is that I was raised by um, hippies, basically. My parents were very, are very, very into music. So um, a lot of that is, you know, classic rock, 60s rock kind of stuff. But the old man, I shouldn't say that, both of them, both my folks were into some heavier stuff. So lots of the Stooges I would hear for, as a kid, um, The Clash, Nazareth, my dad would play. Um, 
he had a couple like black sabbath sabotage record i remember seeing around as a kid like he had he's he collected vinyl um he has thousands of records my father does so mm. as a kid um you know there were there was some heavier kind of punk rock stuff Gen- generation x he would play quite a bit um that i was exposed to and I was certainly attracted to a lot of that stuff from an early age. Stooges, for sure. Clash, London Calling. Um, <clears throat> the first stuff that I really latched onto that was not influenced from my folks was was hair metal. So like watching uh, video hits, I would see Twisted Sister. The first thing I saw uh, as a kid that I really wanted um, that my parents didn't have it was twisted sister so for my sixth christmas my auntie wanda got me stay hungry um after seeing uh some videos on video hits and 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 that was kind of the first thing that i was super into as a little guy that led me to being into more of that stuff so like uh, i really loved motley crew growing up that was that was my thing for sure um which eventually, you know, uh, being kind of a skateboarder, headbanger kind of little guy, uh, I got exposed to then, you know, um, early Metallica stuff, early Megadeth stuff, Testaments. So just a lot of that 80s metal, you know, and I think it was kind of a natural progression from sort of, you know, um, glamish LA kind of metal to a little bit more heavy stuff. And that kind of led initially into being, you know, by the time I was a teenager, being into death metal, checking on, you know, getting into a lot of um, stuff like Cynic, uh, Deicide, Cannibal Corpse, things like that. Mm. So I'd always buy a magazine called Metal Maniacs and, and you know, read about uh, the American and, and British metal bands and stuff that I liked. And that's where I was first exposed to um, hardcore, really. I remember seeing a picture of uh, Sick of It All. I remember reading a little bit about Matt about Madball when they first came out. So it would be heavier kind of hardcore stuff that they would cover in Metal Maniacs, but it was certainly that was my gateway to to um, getting into you know American um, hardcore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it seems like just having parents who had a really big musical background it was like a no brainer to be able to just go down the rabbit hole. Um, sure. Did a lot of those did a lot of those discoveries just come naturally or like uh were more self-imposed versus like you had a an old head is you know what the kids call it you know as far as someone being like oh you like this you should actually listen to this stuff or was a lot of that just like i'm just grasping at anything that's coming my way i mean just being raised by my folks and and you know to me the best thing that you could be you know was like David Bowie or Iggy Pop, like, you know, so as a kid, that's what I I strived for, you know, Um, so, you know, I I sought out music as well as had influences from older, like, skater kids, you know, so first time I heard Metallica was, um, you know, Anastasia pulling teeth, and we're just, like, skating a launch ramp in South Edmonton, and, you know, my friend says, listen to this, you know, and he, you know, literally pulls out his, um, ghetto blaster you know and puts in anastasia pulling teeth or you know bass solo take one that's the first memory of metallica that i have hmm. um so there was influences like that you know and there's a C, uh there's a radio station here in edmonton the university radio station called cjsr that also i just heard about from other punk rock and skateboard kids you know so i would stay up late friday and saturday nights my friend chris Kays and my little brother and i 
and we would tape those those radio shows you know and that's where I first heard you know suicidal tendencies that's where I first heard um descendants like just you know snfu you know I always hear about snfu a lot as an Edmonton kid but Mm -hmm. that's sort of where I first started to actually hear you know the music itself um so yeah, being influenced by my folks and be having music be such an important part of our household, uh, it was natural for me to yeah, um, seek other stuff myself or, or you know, really uh, admire music and, and try and seek out as much of it as I could. Yeah, it, it's very interesting because like good friends of mine uh, up in Edmonton run uh, like a show or have a show through CGSR now in 2022. So it's crazy to hear even like, way way back that like has still going on and you know they play current hardcore and you know it it has stand stood the test of time i guess um so that's really yeah which is amazing right which is amazing considering how much things have changed in the media right but like for me back then that was my lifeline to american you know punk rock and american early american hardcore stuff like that was where i first heard about these things because in in Edmonton at that time there was there was no such thing right there was a heavy metal scene and there was a punk rock scene you know but um they're very very behind America for the most part right and and even just like there's been lots of people of you know my generation uh and even maybe uh a little bit older that discovered a lot of you know the slipknots and um a lot of the new metal uh wave through MTV and through like seeing on the tv and now like you wouldn't even imagine if a misery signal like it would it'd be so weird to see a misery signals video in this day and age on on the tv and i wish that there was a bit of a comeback but i do agree that you know it was a time and place thing and like you know um you know the the world shifts and and evolves and adapts but uh i think discovering it through whether it's tv or radar radio it still touch, touches people and creates different seeds throughout. I think too, like in the radio piece is um, there's a mystique, right? There's a mystery and that's all gone now from music, right? When I was a kid, you know, I didn't know what suicidal tendencies looked like. Like I didn't know what Testament looked like. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, there's, there's something for a little, per, for, no, for, for a young person, I think that mystery really, um, it creates intrigue or like you're very you're very interested in them it it makes things very magical right so some of that video videos um you know computers television some of that has that's taken away some of that mystery some of that um magic unfortunately Yeah. yeah yeah i think that's an interesting interesting point as far as like when you just hear it off of like a you know your skate you're skateboarding with your friends and someone puts it on like a like a beatbox or like whatever it is like you're hearing it and you're only judging it off of what the actual product right. and is. you're like you're you you know your imagination and you're filling in the gaps yourself. Like, what do these totally. guys look like like yeah yeah it can be a, a very yeah. magical thing yeah on on the other side i do think that there are definitely certain things that are now that you know we're just we're almost given all the information up front as far as, you know, what the band looks like, what their logo looks like, how, like what they look like live and how they present themselves. That still resonates with a lot of people uh, because it's like, you know, certain bands are breaking different tropes. And the band that's coming to mind that talks a lot about when they were doing their debut um, is a band from Australia called Speed. And, you know, yep. they when they were doing their demo cover, it's like, we just want the, f- the five of us on the cover to be like, this is what we look like. Um, so it's like kind of showing these like 
you hear the music and it's like this hard New York style, like hardcore that's just in your face. But then you see all these like, you know, uh, majority of that band is all like Asian dudes, but it's like almost like a trope as far as like breaking that norm that like you wouldn't consider someone of Asian ethnicity to be a hard, you know, I can just like write this dope breakdown music, if you know what I mean. So it's, it's an interesting balance and you know i've had members of that band on on this podcast before to talk about that and i think that's a that's just you know you could look at so many different things of so many angles but i do agree that there is some mystery when you just hear it versus you see everything yeah 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 that uh that difference that juxtaposition i guess of of sometimes what a band looks like and then what they sound like can be such an amazing thing as well right right as a kid, I remember watching um, this club here called Starlight Room. I don't know if you've ever been. It used to be the Rev, and when I was a kid, it was the Bronx. Um, I love a band called the Smalls from here. They were around kind of the same time as SNFU, very influential on me. And mm-hmm. I went to see them play one time, and they had a band from, I think, Kamloops or Kelowna band called Spark Marker opening up. And the lead singer came out, and he looked just he just looked like a school teacher. And then as soon as they started, he just went so crazy, and it was um, – yeah, very, very influential and important kind of moment in my life, right? Not to mm. not to judge a book by its cover and and uh, just a very cool thing. Yeah, like what kind of teacher? Like was, he's not wearing like the gym, like he's not like, uh, he's got- He just had like a polo, shorts. like a white polo on, right? And came up in like, oh, like okay. slacks, like he wasn't looking like, you know- uh, I came straight for work to the show kind of vibes. Right, early <laughs> 90s this is, right? So everyone's right. very punk rock, grungy looking. He just looked very out of place. And, you know, I remember being up front and watching him and thinking like, oh, what's this This about? This is different. This looks right. crazy. And then, right, he just went he went off harder than anybody with a shaved head or long hair or whatever, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, was, it was cool. Yeah. So you mentioned Edmonton. Um, and, you know, it's uh, – I – I'm walking into this interview after just watching the uh, of Malice ten year um, tour documentary uh, that you guys did uh, a number of years ago, and something that was interesting that I think you and Stu, who Stu's been on the on the podcast before, is just talking about how when you guys both had joined Misery Signals initially, it was like almost like this like big thing for not only just Edmonton, but just like people in within the neighboring cities and scenes to be able to be like, well, like Jesse and Stu have joined this like huge band and are doing these big scale things. So like, can you talk to me about like the initial stages of the, the first time that happened as well as like what was going on in your local scene? Like, were you playing in like bands locally before? And then you just like springboarded into, into Mystics? It's like, I mean, like I was saying before, you know, Edmonton being, you know, a smaller Canadian city in the prairies, there was not a real hardcore scene, right? When I was, when I was young coming up, there was a, you know, a metal scene, a death metalish kind of scene, and there was a punk rock scene. And those scenes didn't really, didn't really mesh very, very much Um, as uh, compromise started, you know, we would go to Calgary and there was a bit more of a, a scene down there. I would say because of Hoodie Hardcore Fest put on by Mike Zawazdecki, um, Soul Skater, that kind of crew, like him and his friends, uh, X Record X, you know, like th- there was a bit of a hardcore scene down there. There was, a, you know, there was a straight edge band down there, whereas in Edmonton, that didn't exist. There was, you know, there that that didn't really happen yet. So, as Compromise started, <clears throat> um, 
you know, we would just play with punk rock bands. We would play with metal bands. We would play with whoever. We would try and tour into the States and, and out East. And, and in doing so, we would be exposed to more and more of, of you know, uh, the hardcore culture, I guess, you know. Mm. Um, as Compromise pushed and, we you know, we just kind of created a scene here. Jordan was a very um, charismatic and influential person. So just very um, people naturally gravitated towards him. And I think that our band, you know, benefit benefited from that just from you know his personality so he definitely brought people together and, and through those years hardcore was just growing in Edmonton and Calgary and Vancouver and then there was a real it was a small scene in each of those cities you know but there was um a really strong connection between the kids so we would go down to Calgary and play or we would go down to Calgary to see shows Calgary kids would come up here when we played there was um I mean, it still exists. I think it's starting to exist again more so um, now. I think it was gone for a while, but yeah, it was just, I think like any really good scene, all it takes is like a couple good bands and a couple, you know, really hardworking, dedicated people and you can create something really, really wonderful. So mm-hmm. that's just what, what happened here, right? Is early 2000s, we didn't have any hardcore scene. Um, Jordan started to go, you know, his mother moved to Toronto. So that's kind of the the spark of it is that he would go to Toronto in the summer and he would go down to Hellfest. He would go down to Syracuse and he went to Hellfest a couple summers in a row. And then it was like, you know, we're starting a hardcore band. You know, this is, this is what we're doing. We're going to sound like Poison Noel and Chai Halud. And for me, um, I was, like I said, more of a metal guy. So it was with a little bit of uh, resistance, I guess that, you know, of a, he, he, he kind of drugged me along for a while, but sure. um, pretty soon I saw, I saw the, <clears throat> the worth I guess in bands like Poison the Well and the way that they could bridge the heavy and the light and then I, I fell in love with that kind of stuff and, and um, started to build the scene here and then when I joined Seven Angels you know that was uh, yeah very important to 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 people in Western Canada because it was sort of this hometown boy thing um, you know going on to different maybe bigger bigger things right yeah um, which can be inspiring. I often say this about, you know, the smalls and especially SNFU, right? As a kid growing up, it's one thing to, you know, look at Metallica and Megadeth and all these bands, you know, that are, you know, far away, especially for, for us in the prairies, right? This is very, you know, in the 80s, thinking about bands in, in, in Los Angeles and, you know, these bands that I love are all from a very, very far away, different world. Whereas at SNFU were... Um, guys that look like more like me they were canadian guys they were skateboarders um and they made it you know maybe not big but they, they you know they, they proved to me early on that if you worked hard enough even if you came from a small canadian city you could make a dent in the scene um and so yeah i hope that we inspired people in that same way yeah i think so and i i definitely want to echo what you said like whether it's in western canada or any other like smaller scene that isn't as spoiled as you know the california's the new york's the florida's all those places like all it takes is a couple really good bands that have those releases that go outside of you know the the initial sound barrier of your friends um as well as like people that you know do a fest people that film shows like people that are doing all the quote-unquote extra things outside of that that help lift it all together um and i i definitely feel that and then some when it comes to calgary whether it's wild rose hardcore fest um to me filming shows to people starting record labels now and 
you know, not even just in Calgary, but Edmonton as well, just has like just so many dope bands in varying degrees of genres right now. And I think it's just a net positive that all those things work together to like, you know, when people see different bands and then they're like, where's this, this band's from Edmonton. Where, where, where is that? And then they have to like, right. Oh, this is not even in the States. And they're going down the rabbit hole. So. Yeah. I think uh, I definitely see a rebirth of, of a hardcore scene here in the last couple of years. And that's uh, it's a wonderful thing for this old guy to see. <laughs> Absolutely. You're like, yeah, I, I, I think at a certain age, you're like, I'm happy to see this because like, I've I've done my due diligence and I've done my fair share of work to play in bands and do all these things and I'm still doing that but like the the heavy lifting and just inspiring nature needs to be done by by the by the kids by the people that are in their like like early 20s if not younger than that um to be yep. able to take up that mantle for sure. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So we're going to fast forward a little bit um, to the latest Misery Signals uh, release as far as the time of recording this episode, which is Ultraviolet. Um, when Stu was on the podcast, which is maybe over a year at this point, um, you know, we were still like peak pandemic, you know, not really sure when things were coming out. And I think just the a few singles had been released at that time. So, sure. um, you know, it's it's a little annoying at times to be like, you have to add COVID years to like all the, the aspects of it, because I think Stu had mentioned that there was things were ready to go even, you know, earlier than that, but it was like, okay, we have to kind of put it out dirt, uh, even during this unknown time. So one, one thing that kind of stuck with me after our discussion is that he was saying for the first track, it was ultra important because Jesse was coming back to hear his voice like so early in the song, not like this two minute, like little intro kind of thing. So talk to me about like the initial like, OK, I'm stepping into the mic booth again to do this with guys that I have, you know, a very interesting history with, you know, there's lots of good and, and bad and, and things in between. And, uh, and we'll get into some of like the transparency stuff of, of the band, but talk to me about the original, like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm like recording and we're going to be putting this out in like X time. Talk to me about that. Uh, I guess just pretty, in, a pretty intimidating time that, you know, in the fact that I had not done it for so long. So, um, after misery signals, I went to university and became a school teacher Misery Signals was a band, you know, Ryan and, 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 and Kyle, you know, Seven Angels, Seven Plagues was a band that us and Compromise really, really looked up to. So, um, you know, the fact that I got to join that band was, was um, it was cool because it was a band that I, that I, that I really liked. So I think we worked really hard in Misery Signals. I think of Malice and the Magnum Heart was, is, is a strong release. You know, I think the strongest thing that I had been a part of up to that point. So to then try and come back and, and you know, equal that was uh, intimidating. I was not intimidating and just not something that I really thought I could even do. I questioned it, you know, if we could m match that. You know, I remember thinking after Malice, like, 
lyrically content wise, I had so much uh, hardship and tragedy to draw upon. Right. And, and that's why that record connects on so many levels or one of the reasons that record connects on so many levels. So sure. for a second release, you know, you always hear about that sophomore jinx thing. And I just felt like for us, oh, this, this is a real thing. Like, can I match what, what, what I've, what we've done, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't have to, obviously with them, with them kicking me out, I didn't, I didn't have to do, you know, try and match that right away. Um, but that same, that same doubt, those same, that same, que- those same questions, you know, still existed, still arose when we started writing ultraviolet. So um, <clears throat> I just didn't do anything for so many years because I didn't know that I could match mal, you know, malice. I didn't know that I could match misery signals. And uh, in fairness, you know, when you're in university, uh, I was so focused just on on my studies and stuff, and that was fine for the first few years because you are so. Uh, I was so focused on that, so I didn't miss the creative element of music. I didn't miss that outlet so much, you know. Um, surely, as the years went on in university, I started to feel it more, you know, because I wasn't as busy with with things. And then, in, you know, then I started teaching. And in my first few few years of teaching, same thing. I didn't miss it so much. You know, that hole was <clears throat> kind of partially filled by 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 just teaching and creating um, content. You know, for for my lessons. Mm. But I definitely definitely started to miss that quite a bit. And <clears throat> um, then the Malice X tour happened, and I just kind of you know I did not sang heavy music for years and years. Like it was a long, long time. And I was living in the middle of Saskatchewan. So <clears throat> I had nowhere to practice. You know, I didn't have a band to practice with. And it was like, okay, we're just going to go and we're not going to just go and play six or seven songs. You know, we're going to go and we're going to play this entire record front to back. Many of the songs too, we didn't really play all that much, um, you know, in the initial version of the band. So it was intimidating to come back and do that Malice X thing. And, and then also, you know, the, the geography issues of the band, have always existed and that also played a part like I just didn't have a band to practice with so um, we wrote that record in a very fragmented strange manner you know through uh, thanks to the internet and then just brief um, times where we would get together you know but it Mm -hmm. was certainly a very very vastly different experience from how we had written of Malice and the Magnum Heart which was done you know in my basement all together like every single note is basically written together right from the yeah. ground up ultraviolet is done very very differently so um for me to come in and, and and uh try to do what we had done 10 years prior or whatever was was intimidating and, and hard and I don't, I don't think my voice is, is is all that great on on ultraviolet. I think it's stronger on malice, and I think it's become stronger in the years since, just because, especially like in the last couple of years, because I've been doing compromise, right? I have had compromise to practice here in Edmonton with. Like sure. Misery singles has always been such a challenge for me because they live in, in America, right? So there's always been this issue with rehearsal and and proper rehearsal. You know, yeah. Uh, anyone in a band knows that get practice in your room as hard as as you want right and it's never going to equal even a rehearsal and then you can practice as hard you know uh, you know as hard as you can at rehearsal and it's never going to equal a show so right the challenge and misery signals isn't a band that's like okay we got the fast part into the the tom break the build up and then the breakdown it's like there's so it feels like there's so many if Misery Signals to me feels like string theory at times. It's just like so much going on. And uh, yeah, not having the luxury to you guys as far as like practicing on a regular basis is uh, 
I, I don't know how, how you guys do it, but um, I, I understand the, the complexities there for sure. Yeah, so come back and do it all those years later was was, was scary and challenging, but um, you know we we worked really hard, and I think we're all quite proud of of what we did with Ultraviolet. I don't think mm -hmm. it's, I don't think it's ten out of a ten. You know, I think um, in a lot of ways it's better than Malice, um, but I think if we do another one, if we did another one, I, you know, I think we have one maybe better record in us. Yeah, 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 and I I think we're it's it's that classic thing of always like you know, holding the first release or the demo on a pedestal and then everything else feels like, you know, not as good, but, uh, there's definitely like certain songs, you know, where I heard in other interviews where you said you were trying to, you know, push the, the twins into being a little bit more like, you know, rock, uh, structure as far as song goes versus like 17 riffs. Um, so I appreciated that as like the more punk and hardcore person to be like, Oh, I can understand. Like, we've come back to this part versus yeah. like it just i've heard this part going. before <laughs> exactly it's always been an interesting challenge right with like Stuart and myself you know coming from more of a punk rock metal background and kyle as well and then the brothers right like their father is in the madison, madison symphony orchestra so they just naturally which, come by yeah. which um, you know, as soon this. as i heard that i was like that that checks out because it feels like they're constructing yeah, it totally makes sense. Like I, I'm at home listening. I'm at home listening to the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, right? And their dads playing them Debussy and stuff like that. So it's a <laughs> very vastly different upbringing of, of, of what you just heard as a little kid, right? And I, I think that definitely played into how we wrote music. Yes, absolutely. So um, I would, I'll say because you weren't in the band for uh, kind of the, you know, right now we're, we have, the Jesse records are the bread of the Misery Signals discography sandwich. So focusing on Of Malice and Ultraviolet, I always like, so I'm going to ask you this question, and usually I include the entire entire discography, and you can you can throw in the rest of this if you really want to, but if we're only looking at the Jesse Misery Signals records, what, in your opinion, is the most overrated song of those two records and what is the most underrated song of those two records holy smokes um like people love 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 five years and i just don't think that it's it's equal to other stuff on that record um lyrically for me it's a little bit goofy it's a little bit um immature it's a little bit yucky i don't like singing it um so for me i guess lyrical content yeah i don't love five years but people right. love that like especially i don't know on the east coast and stuff like in new york and places like that like five years is just is absolutely loved um hmm. so for me that would be the one that i think is is kind of overrated but you know the the, the, the end riff like the morgan like diddly, 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 you know that's amazing so uh, it's hard to it's you know you can't right. uncouple the two or whatever. Right. Um, I don't think that there's anything on the on, on ultraviolet that I'm displeased with or you know I'm unhappy with or I think is is overrated. Uh, I think the um, a certain death is quite overrated, which is like one of their big hits. <laughs> right. Uh, I wasn't there. I'm you know they always want to play that one. I don't really like that one. The singy part at the end to me has always been a little bit. Um, whatever i i don't love that part so yeah it's not well um, you didn't write it so it's right. you know exactly that would that checks out it. yeah yeah um as far as under underrated uh for either uh of those two records does anything come to mind for those 
no, I think I, th I mean, I think I think the band is um, enjoyed, respected, and you know enough. I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's Good. it's interesting because the you're you as the vocalist are looking at it from a lyrical and you know connecting on that. Where if I ask Stu, like he might look at it at a little bit more of like, I think this song does like we put so many good riffs into this song and then it never got the love um on that side or like i feel like i'm just kind of doing the same chord thing for the entirety of this song so you know that's yeah I, I i don't love the tempest i guess and stewart that's stewart's like baby that's one of the ones stewart really just latched onto early on in the writing sessions um and so he wanted that to be the first song on the record and like he wanted that to be the video and I, yeah, so that one I would say, I, in okay. my opinion, is overrated. Is is the Tempest? Um, Some Dreams is one that I really like off Ultraviolet that we don't really play. Old Ghosts I really like, um, and same thing. We just never really have included it into the set yet. Mm -hmm. but who knows okay. what will happen in the future? Who knows? Sometimes right. I like the serendipity that maybe if we talk about something being underrated, the people listening to this are like, oh, I need to go extra hard if <laughs> Mr. Signals is playing that song right. uh, in my town. Um, so going back a little bit now to when you guys were doing the Of Malice 10 year uh, uh, reunion tour, um, you know, something that was interesting, and we'll get to the doc in, in a little bit, but um, something that was interesting there is like, when I was, you know, hearing the the stuff on the documentary, it seemed very much like this is the one and only time that we're doing it with the OG lineup. When and at what point did that change where it's like, okay, we can do another record and we can kind of do that? Like what what was the the last domino that started a, a new chapter for you guys? Misery Signals is such a weird band. And I think that if you asked each of us this question, it might be, you might get five different answers. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, like coming back and, you know, like the door just kind of creaked open a little bit, right? When they said, hey, let's go do this, this, this thing. So to me, right off the bat, it's like, you know, the possibilities are endless. Like, yeah, we can go do this amazing tour. Things are going to be great. We're going to write another record. Everything's going to be fine, you know? Um, but, you know, you also have to keep in mind that at that time, I'm like, just in my first few years of teaching too. So it's kind of like, oh, do I want to jump back into this thing? Because I know it's all encompassing. I know like how important it is to put your whole self into it. Right. And I'm just kind of starting my teaching career at the same time. So that was um, challenging. Uh, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, you were You were mentioning that this answer to this question might be different for every person in the band all right so yeah. you know by the that tour is going well and as you you know anyone who has watched uh yesterday was everything the documentary sees that there's obviously an, an internal struggle within the band right and maybe some of us are more um obviously early on being like hey this is a great thing let's keep doing this and then some other people are, are more resistant to it i think basically like in the film it's more kind of ryan and i right but there's there's more to it than that film shows certainly you know, Rye, I think, was resistant to even having me come back at all in the beginning, I think. I think maybe things had played themselves out in a similar manner, you know, with Carl as they had with myself. I think that whether I'd come back or not for, for Malice X, I don't know that they would have continued on anyways with Carl. Things were, were not in a good 
good space. So for when, you know, for me, um, I was just like, let's do this. Let's do Malice X. That's fantastic. If there's further opportunities down the road, um, I'm pretty, pretty open to them because I really miss playing in this band and I really miss playing heavy metal and stuff. So as that tour went on and the shows were just like great show after great show. And, and more importantly, I think, you know, the connections that you make um, in the hardcore scene, you know, I, a lot of these people that I'd become friends with, I didn't see for 10 years or something. Right. So all of a sudden, you know, you're in Milwaukee and you're seeing all these people that because the guys live there, right. I'd spent so much time in the States. Um, that tour was just amazing. You know, I got to get to see so many great people and play all these great shows. And it was, <clears throat> I think as much as Ryan wanted to just say that was it, we're going to walk away. I think, you know, it was nearly impossible to do. I think with myself and the other four, you know, or other three just pushing to to continue on, I think um, we kind of broke through his armor eventually. And, and um, not at the end, like on the, on the yesterday was everything, right? Like that, though, that tour is broken into two chunks. So we do a summer bit where we end in Toronto, right? There's two amazing shows at Gramercy Theater in New York and then at um, Escaping Me Now, Opera House in Toronto. Mm-hmm. That's the final show, but we know that there's going to probably be a couple more. We're not certain, but like you know, on the video, I say this might be the last time we ever play these songs together. And like, I'm kind of like choking up literally because it's a, we're not certain that we're going to do these other shows. But that was all West or East Coast kind of stuff, right? And then there's kind of the plan to maybe do some West Coast stuff as well. So mm-hmm. by the end of that New York, by the end of the East Coast stuff, it doesn't look like we're going to continue on. Like I'm, um, there's been no real big change of heart from what I see between Ryan and I there's been no huge talks or anything so it's like okay maybe this is this is it like it's been cool but maybe this is the end of it right um in the months in between like by September I think Kyle who's basically kind of the the band manager the guy who does a lot of that stuff for us he starts to look into doing like a couple California shows maybe a Texas show um and he does book those so those happen over December my Christmas break of that year and it's that final show in Dallas where we play um, in Deep Elm, this area where we used to play, which is like, you know, White Ave of Edmonton or something like just the main strip. Um, and we go to, you know, this is um, places where we had been, you know, places where we had spent a lot of time together. And we go to this little pizza shop where we used to eat when we were kids next to trees, this other club that we used to always play. And the brothers are sitting down eating some pizza. And, and I remember walking in there and like, um, it's the last show, everything's done. Like, this is Dallas. This is the final show of the whole run. And I just said to Ryan, I said, you know, if you guys can't get things together with Carl, um, I sure would be happy to come back and try and, and do something again. Mm. So I think that was the, you know, you know, the, 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 the spark, I guess, of, of things. Right. And um, I said, even I said, even if we just write some songs, it doesn't have to be misery signals. Maybe it's just, we just write some songs. And so when I got back to Canada that time, I sent him a few riffs and um, what that song eventually became was a call song called Morphine, which eventually became Some Dreams. So Some Dreams is really the first kind of thing we started to write. Um, but again, because like, it's not an easy band to be in. And, and I don't think I really knew that I was back in the band until maybe two years after that. Hmm. 
there's you know like there's just this very gray area of like okay we're gonna play some shows okay maybe we're gonna write some songs together but it was just like ryan and i exchanging riffs and ideas right um i'm in the middle of the prairies like in the middle of saskatchewan at that point so it's just a, a very gradual um a very gradual growth it, it just took some time mm-hmm. yeah and i think like an overall theme that i see with misery signals and this kind of like goes into the the documentary is that like the transparency of the band and in like you know anyone that's like maybe tuning in and doesn't know like a lot of the other members of, of misery signals like and it's like wow like just is being very upfront about all these things that are going on but like that is kind of shown in the documentary uh and then some with like the rest of the guys and like obviously it's like you're not just having someone just come along on this tour and you know you all like looked at the documentary before you greenlit it to you know go to a worldwide audience but like has that neat is was the way of like being transparent about the the good and the ugly of this band like something that just like needed to happen or was it just like was it just so easy between members just to be upfront about it in a in a public setting do, do you know what i'm i'm asking <clears throat> yeah i don't love every element of that of that movie and and i don't know that that movie would what wouldn't have come out the same if you know uh, we did it now mm-hmm. just like i was very vulnerable at that point like that movie also was made by matt mixon who is is ryan's best friend like his childhood friend so um there's uh there's choices that matthew made in 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 his uh you know in his as he laid that film out you know that that he 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 tells a story um and he chose what story he wanted to focus on what elements he wanted to focus on i think at times that film doesn't focus on um some of the things I wish it did. I wish it told more of the story of compromise. I think at time it's kind of like reality TV, like it's a little over dramatic at times, um, mm-hmm. but it's effective. And, it, and it's, I'm not saying it's not true because it is true. You know, it's just, it's like any film. There's just choices that were made by, by Matthew to make it, um, to whatever, to, to tell the story that he, that he wanted, he, that he wanted to tell. I just think that if it was maybe my best friend that was making that film, it might've turned out a little bit different. And because I was still at that point, not back in the band, like I'm like kind of trying to get back in the band. I didn't pick it apart and I didn't really see it until it was basically done. Um, and I did raise some concerns with Matthew and stuff about it, but we just had a band meeting about it. And um It, it, it as hard as that film is for me to watch and for some people to watch I guess that's maybe what makes it so good you know it, it is it is very truthful it's very very hard um it's hard thing for me to be a part of hard thing for me to watch the first time and I think I've you know I've only watched it one time yeah um, yeah yeah I think like You've, you've talked about this on other uh, interviews that I was listening to today where you were like, I don't think anyone in that band like comes out of that documentary looking shinier or anything like that. But I do feel like there was maybe a bit more um, of like 
antagonizing you specifically to a degree. Um, And, you know, like, I do think that there are a lot of good things about the documentary as far as, like, even just, like, the quality level as a filmmaker myself. Like, the fact that it wasn't just, like, over crazy production it was like kind of very it felt it felt like a hardcore documentary for like a metalcore band so there's some pros there but i definitely felt like you know there the biases were maybe a little bit more apparent as far as the person making that but um it was watching it today it just and i highly recommend like if if people do have access to be able to check it out i feel like there is some stuff to take away from because there was definitely some moments in the you know compromise seven angels major signals kind of combined story that just like really you know moved me just like it was really raw just to see some of those like really um you know the interviews and some of the footage of of all the things that transpired there so um yeah like i don't know it it's definitely hard when you are handing your creative ip to someone else that you don't necessarily 100 percent align with and you know but i do i do think it's worth giving you guys kudos to be able to put that out so people could hear the story about like um you know everything that happened in compromise and how that was connected to the other bands that you were a part of yeah it's 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 a heavy it's a heavy thing like it's it's well done he did he did he did a fantastic job with it it's just for myself a weird thing to be a part of right Mm -hmm. um so this is more of a general question but like how when did you know the the shortening of misery signals to miss sigs when did that start to hit your radar when you were in the band or 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 was that like was that post when you left initially no i think that that's something that we just said lots ourselves like Mm -hmm. just as uh yeah just slang that we just kind of (laughs) said i think i don't i don't recall like the first time i heard it Mm -hmm. i it was when i was like first getting you know uh into you guys it was like oh yeah i love mystics and they would like catch me off guard at first i'm like well what is that so i don't know (laughs) yeah but it's funny to see now that like it's just so second nature for totally do you do you find that like majority of misery signals fans or mystics fans today are people that are fans from like the very first records or like what percentage do you think of like people that are like newer fans that like just discovered ultraviolet in the in the midst of the pandemic like what do you think is like the average like age range or just like you know showgoer for for one of your shows i'm like you know grown men nowadays basically like large bearded men like i always say like oh the kids tonight were this or the kids tonight were that and it's like oh no like the large grown men is what yeah. um you know i i think that thanks to us staying active and thanks to bands like counterpart and brand, you know, counterparts and Brandon and stuff talking about us. Um, you know, we still, there's still young people that come out to the shows, right. People, mm-hmm. um, you know, young metal core kids understand who we are. Um, but it's, it's generally older guys, right. It's, it's generally, you know, people in their thirties and forties that are, that are coming to see misery signals these days. Mm-hmm. So 
I love that you brought up Brendan, friend of the show. He's been on twice now. Um, we're scheduling a third, and I feel like that's a good transition into this other thing. So the last time that Brendan Murphy was on the podcast, we talked about Furnace Fest 2021, mm-hmm. where Measure Signals couldn't play. So there was kind of a stitching together of other members of of past and present Misery Signals, as well as counterparts and Comeback Kid and everything oh, in between. Yeah. Um, Shai Halud. And Shai Halud as well. Yeah, thank you for adding that. So when can you just tell your side of the story on that end? Because, you know, in Brendan's episode, he kind of mentions, like, because he's like, these are his words. He's like, I think um, your summer ended in June is like one of the best metalcore songs of all time. So it felt like, am I allowed to sing this song? So talk to me about like your side when you're just getting the texts and the calls for, from him when this is happening. So I couldn't go because of COVID, um, you know, and this is a festival, like the very first show that I ever play with seven angels where I'm just singing um, is, is at Furnace Fest. It's at Furnace Fest 2003. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> 2002. So it's only a few months after the crash and the crash is, um, the last show compromise ever plays is in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. Furnace Fest is in Birmingham, Alabama. So the last show compromise ever plays is in that city. The first show that I ever played with seven angels is in that city a few months later. Um, that place just holds a special place in, in my heart and the hearts of the band, I guess for myself, you know, right when I, I joined seven angels, we were, we're playing that festival and I'm playing that festival alongside, you know, code seven and hate breed and all these bands that, you know, I really looked up to as a younger guy. So um, it's a special place uh, for myself. I, I love elements of Southern America uh, and that venue itself specifically is, is really, really, really neat. It's a very interesting place. It's an old iron plant. So um, it's unlike any other venue that I've ever played in my life. So totally. very, very cool place. And then to, you know, to, for them to have been able to resurrect that fest and ask us to come back, super excited about it. And then the fact that it was put off by COVID for two years, um, you know, uh, uh, it just built up the anticipation and, and, and then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, this is going to happen. And I can't go, you know, I can't go. And, again that rehearsal bit like i maybe i'm kind of glad that we didn't at that point because we were so unpracticed like we hadn't played together in literally you know years at that point over a year right um so for us to have gone and played furnace fest in last year would have been a huge challenge and i just don't know that we would have delivered on the level that we like to deliver so right um it was hard and it was like literally one of the hardest weekends of my life like i'm stuck here you know, people are posting all this stuff on Instagram and Facebook. Friends Promo are showing is that and all, all these songs, like killer, like the worst <laughs> of my life, probably. Right. Like, yeah, what am I doing? And um, then that day, Stuart messaged me and said, like, hey, we have this idea. What do you think about this? You know, and I said, oh, that's you know, that's good. That would be wonderful. Like, that's that's an yeah. honor. I'd be honored. That's fantastic. Um, and then Brendan messaged me being like, hey, you know, like, is this OK if I, if I do this? And and um you know, like of course it's okay to me I understand like it's the year summer ended in June so it's like this special song but um 
you know, if there ever was a group of people to play that song and if there ever was a venue and a time to do that, that was it. So like, you know, mm-hmm. I was, I was hundred percent all for it. Just super bummed that I couldn't be there to witness it. So, mm-hmm. um, one of my friends, Laura, who used to play bass in the wage of sin, which is a band that we used to play with when we were young. Uh, she like live, um, Facebook messaged me the whole thing. So like, I, I, I was watching it, you know, like I was tearing up watching them play that song there and just being like, I'm stuck here in Canada. My God. <laughs> so it was, it was really cool. Um, I'm really, really happy that they were able to get it together. And I think they did a, a really great job with it. Yeah. So now fast forward to this year, Furnace Fest 2022, then everything kind of connects finally. So, yeah. so it, it's interesting. I was saying how like you may be looking back and being like, oh yeah, we needed more time on the, you know, just get to get practiced up in season. Did that all, did all that anticipation that was building for you pay off for this year? Yeah, it was just absolutely magical, just a wonderful time. Um, the weather was fantastic. <clears throat> got to see so many people again, like that I'd not um, I'd got to share time with for, for many, many years. So um, just really, really great. And then our show, our set was, was um, everything that I had hoped it would be. So super thankful that we were able to be a part of that. Uh, that I was able to get to go on. Like we played the exact same stage that I played when I was a kid with seven angels. So it was pretty special, pretty amazing, pretty yeah. amazing thing. Um, and it was, it did work out for us in the fact that we were practiced, right? Like this year has been <clears throat> for a bunch of dads and, and dudes that are busy with other things. Like we've been pretty, pretty busy this year. We played a lot of shows. So, you know, as far as, you know, for us, we were as pretty, pretty much as practiced as we could be. So it was, it was a good time for us to, play yeah yeah absolutely so um yeah that's crazy to just think about the return of a lot of shows because as you know being a canadian like things in the states came back way sooner than up here in canada because just restrictions were just through the the yin yang but yeah misery singles did play a lot like the the western canada cancer bats and comeback kid run was just like maybe uh quantity of shows was like the most but then either even for you guys to do the little run in eastern canada with end and trench and then playing things like this is hardcore like you know is is that is that uh amount of um of shows like the the perfect balance for what you have going on in your life right now or is it like let's let's go down just a little bit or let's increase it a little bit more that was doable for me right and like I just I think that we have to be conscious of the fact that we are you know in our 40s and and you know like like um like an athlete you can only do this well for so long right and I think you have to accept that and we're perfectionists we really care about the art that we put out there and I think that there's you know a shelf life for us so um I think we, we, we're, we're at a good point right now. We're able to perform still, but I think that there's probably a time where we're not going to be able to do that so well anymore. So mm-hmm. take advantage now, you know, kind of carpe diem kind of thing, like seize the day, because I think that, you know, in a couple more years, like I just probably won't be able to do it at the level that, that I want to be able to do it at. So let's, let's tour as much as we can now and um, enjoy it while we can. Mm-hmm. It, like, I'm sure that there's certain blackout times or like, you know, things within, you know, your teaching schedule that you're like, I just can't be out at this time. Um, but it, 
like is there anything within uh when you work as a teacher where you can like request a book time off for a tour or is it just like i have these breaks that the kids are not in school and and that's my touring schedule so definitely yeah i mean i definitely have like summer christmas break spring break you know and then and then other long weekends here and there and that's essentially what we just kind of use this year you know like we just right. all of my breaks we toured as much as we can um last year and the year before I was working in this outreach center with high school kids so I was like I wasn't lecturing right I didn't have like a traditional four blocks a day that I had to teach so there was a lot more leeway mm-hmm. and um my principal all my principals and over the last decade have been super supportive so that's not really an issue but mm-hmm. um I started in a new uh, job this year where I'm running a grade nine and eight classroom for kids that are seeking alternative programming, similar to what I did with the high school kids, but because they're under 16, they have to be in the desks. They have to be there each day. So Mm. I have to be right in the classroom teaching them. Um, and a lot of my kids are kind of like coming from at risk scenarios. So this year, I wouldn't want to leave them. Last year, it was, you know, I could do it and, and, and took advantage of that scenario. But this year, my teaching job um, is a little bit more demanding. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I won't leave this year as much as I left last year, just because it's important to me to be here for the kids. Totally. Um, and I've said this on the podcast before, it's like, I've, probably learned more applicable skills into how I carry myself in the world, how I approach like, you know, job interviews or like just different things that I've learned from doing DIY or doing hardcore. So when it comes to you, what is like the one and most applicable thing that you just catch yourself like, oh, I wouldn't have known this if I didn't play in bands and tour around the world. Um, but I am doing this and applying this in my, in my classroom every single day. Does anything come to mind there? I mean, nothing specific, but I just mean like being, uh, you know, being an English teacher, you know, I can very commonly talk about, you know, settings and environments, places where these, where the literature's set, you know, where I've literally been, right? Like, you know, we're reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, I've, you know, I've been, I spent a lot of time down in the South. I can connect to that and kind of, that helps me, I think, to teach the kids on that level, the amount of travel that I've done. So, and that also obviously connects to social studies. Um, so I just think the amount of traveling that, that you do playing in, in bands um, is going to be, uh it's going to make you a a, a more intelligent, more rounded person, whatever career you're involved in. Right. Mm -hmm. Are there any road stories that you've told uh, a kid and then they're like, that sounds too crazy. I don't believe you. Yeah, no, not nothing that <laughs> nothing that I can think of off the top of my head. Not really. I mean, yeah, Mr. Z is pretty trustworthy. They're like, yeah, yeah, he's done some some crazy stuff. Yeah, and I mean, and, and I mean, as Mr. Z too, there's certain things that I that I can't, you know, share. Yeah, so you can't. <laughs> yeah, there's certain <laughs> certain Mr. Signal show stories that probably should yeah. not be told. <laughs> yeah, there's it's a We're certain the show and just a certain version of me that they get there. Yes. Yeah. It's like the you know the there's there's many filters on that before also do do people say mr z or mr z 
Z generally. Um, okay. I've only had a handful of kids through the years that say Z. Like, and in my current situation, we're first names, so they call me Jesse. Most of them. Oh, okay. Some kids yeah. they can't get away from the Mister thing, so they still be Mister Zaraska or Mister Z. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, if it's Mister Z, uh, which is is the most common, yeah, only only a few have said Mister Z through the years. Is that a which like, is odd, right? But yeah, totally. And I th- I think it's odd that you're on a first name basis because I would I would get in trouble when I was in middle school and high school to call yeah. my teacher by their first name. For sure. So th- that just speaks to the environment, the, the place that I work. So where I work, it's it's kids that have been maybe had maybe have anxiety issues, maybe have bullying issues from other schools, maybe have been expelled from other schools, or they are seeking alternative programming because they're super involved in like theater or sports or something like that. But generally they have not all had the best school experience in the past. So we want to make it as welcoming and um, relaxed as possible. So the first Mm -hmm. name thing is just kind of one of the things that we do to make them feel more chill. Um, yeah, it doesn't bother me. I know I, I, there's certainly some teachers that don't like it. You know, they want they want to be Mister or Mrs., but it's never never bothered me. You're like, chill out, Steve. Jesse chill out, Mary. Or Jesse, whatever. <laughs> um, going back a little bit, uh, you were mentioning uh, just on Mister Signals about like you guys really care about the art that you make, and something that you said in in the documentary that kind of like hit me is that it was like. Um, I just I wrote down the quote. It was like we were focused on the art at all costs. And as someone who is, you know, when I have like my own project, I definitely am a perfectionist. I get very like crazy about the details. Um, so maybe because you're in your 40s now, what would be the one thing that you would say to you know, 18, 19, 20 year old Jesse when you know you're first in misery signals as far as like something to remind yourself of like doing the art does matter, but dot, dot, dot. But in order to continue to do the art, you have to consider longevity. You have to consider health. You have to consider, you know, taking care of yourself and and each other. So um, for us, it was just go, 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 go. We're going to take over the world. We're going to release as much music as we can. We're going to tour and play as many shows each year as we can. And, and it, it burned us out. And it's just like, as much as we all love music and love what we've done, like, it killed us. Right. Like, and we're, we're lucky that we were able to come back years later and kind of figure it out and realize that, you know, it wasn't because we were all super hard to deal with. It was just that we were in a very extreme situation. Um, I had come from a great amount of trauma and tragedy and we just like pushed ourselves too hard at too young of an age. How do you, while you're on tour now have moments of, you know, peace or time just for yourself to like reset things on your end? There's just so many different things, I think, especially as a singer that you recognize that you realize as the years go on that you have to do in order to maintain your health and your ability to sing. So sleep, just sleep is the number one thing, right? Like, so whatever you have to do, whatever tricks you have to pull to make sure that you're getting enough sleep, um, you know, you have to do that. And in a van tour or a bus tour, those can be very different things. So what tricks you employ are, are going to be different dependent on, on that specific scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, do you nap? See, I, I, I think you really, do I nap? Yeah. Yeah. So definitely I would in the past when we were on van tours, because I'd have the loft, you know, I would 
And back then when we were young, especially like, you know, you're there till three or four in the morning, loading out, doing all that, you get to the hotel and maybe you're at the hotel from like four or 5 a.m. until 10 or 11, right? So there's only a, you know, five or six hour chunk there where you can get sleep in a bed. That's not going to do it, right? So right. I would definitely, we would all definitely sleep in the van, then on the drives during the mornings, during the early afternoon. So mm -hmm. that was important on a bus tour. You can do that more. Um, and just really, you know, maintaining general health, right? So making sure that you're eating right. For me, it's uh, my diet's a huge thing. I can't eat a whole bunch in the day like the other guys. So I eat very light, like I eat like a banana and an apple and an orange in the morning, and then, you know, um, a reasonable lunch, but I won't eat dinner, maybe a small salad, you know, if we're playing late enough, but yeah. I generally don't really eat dinner until after we play. So um, yeah, just making sure that you are not living off fast food, making sure that you are getting enough rest. Um, and then, you know, taking just good breaks. Like I found myself when I was young, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't make it happen. But now, like, I'll go to a museum, you know, I'll go to, you know, some, some, some parks. For me now as a teacher, right, like I have specific locations a lot of the time, like, oh, I want to go check this out because it's in this book, or I want to go check mm. this out because it's from this part of World War Two or whatever, right? Like, right, right. so I've, I've made much more, a uh, much more conscious effort of, of doing that kind of stuff uh, while we're on tour. So it's not just boom 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 like you just you know you know play a show go to sleep drive play a show go to sleep drive like right i try to add in a little bit more um wealth in my days yeah no i i i love that i love the idea of being in your classroom and then being like oh uh mr z's back from tour and you have like oh i went to go visit this monument or like whatever um that's applicable to you know i love i love the connection between those two worlds um yeah. You mentioned that normally you won't eat until after your set. What's a perfect post-set Jesse meal, you know, of your choosing? Someone's someone's taking you to dinner after a basic single set. What what are you after? Yeah, so I mean, it depends. If we're playing a show the next day, then I still have to be conscious of like what I'm eating. So I I eat a lot of sushi, a lot of like Asian food, I guess, when I'm on tour. Okay, lots like tons of salads, tons of fruit. Um, but I'm also like a meat and potatoes guy. Right. So if it was like the end of tour and I was like, it was the last show and we're going to go for a big meal. Like I'd like a big, like keg meal or like, you know, steak and potatoes. <laughs> like, yeah. So Mr. Signals might be at, uh, some local keg at the very end of, of any tour. Well, just myself, probably. <laughs> just, just, yeah, there's, just yeah, drop there's me off here. Padmanati <laughs> or some vegan place. Yeah. 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 I'll Uber back to the hotel, but uh, just leave me here for the next couple of hours. Oh, Which was challenging, really right? Like when we were young too, that was another thing. Like that was, we would fight a lot about that kind of stuff because it was three vegans, two, two meat eating Canadians. And like, um, we've certainly, learned how to deal with 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 our diets much mm -hmm. better over time but when we were kids there was a lot of fighting about that too yeah it, it's funny um end game originally for the longest time only the drummer of our band was a meat eater and then it was like i primarily eat vegetarian and then we had two vegans and right. just off of certain uh events have transpired and now there's three meat eaters in the bed and one vegan so now right. we're just being like yo dan eat a big mac and he's like no <laughs> yeah it's changed through the years like um brandon our drummer is the only one who has stayed um 
vegan is you know he's been vegan since he was 15 or 16 years old like it's crazy yeah um but when i joined that band right when i when i joined seven angels those guys are all like christian straight edge vegans and i'm this you know canadian meat eating very different (laughs) (laughs) yeah just the opposite yeah that's so funny um so uh we were talking it's like, sorry, sometimes when you talk about food on a podcast, it kind of derails it and I kind of get off the, the tracks That's where, right, we, where we were. Gather um, yourself. Gather myself. I am thinking about the lack of food in my stomach right now, but I think I, I, think I should think about my post-podcast meal uh, after this for sure. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe we could just talk about like uh, compromise specifically because, um, you know, that band, you know, I think a lot of the things as far as like the accident and some of those things that are concerned are like a lot of those things are covered in the documentary and it it's up to you if like how much like we would hit on for, for this interview. But I think the, the craziest thing is be, not being a local Alberta person. Cause I moved here like six or seven years ago when it was announced that compromise was coming back to do shows. There was like, I could feel the excitement from all the people that I know that are born and raised here. So, so before we even get to like the new music that you guys are starting to put out, like, was that even, did that even hit your radar of like, Oh, this band might do something. Cause it's been like 20 years, um, kind of in between those things. Yeah. It was never anything that we considered. Um, and I don't think because it was, uh, we were against it is just the reality of, of how our lives, the paths that our lives have taken myself being so involved with misery signals and then getting into teaching Ryan, our drummer um, played in a band called Savannah from here and toured and toured and toured and then joined SNFU for a bit, eventually made his way down to LA where he lives now. And he just made a life down there for himself. So we were just never together, right? For, for so many years, um, we would just see each other at Christmas. We would see each other, you know, when Ryan got back here in between tours or came home for visits, stayed super close and everything, but just lived in different cities. So um, the idea of compromise ever writing or doing anything of worth was just never, never was um, seemed like a reality. Mm-hmm. COVID though changed that Ryan had to come home for for an extended period of time and we just started jamming and we had done that previously like once in a while like oh we're all home for Christmas like let's get together and you know play some songs mm-hmm. kind of crap you know, like you know piece together a couple compromise songs and you know some sick of it all or mad ball songs or whatever like that kind of thing we had done just jamming for fun here and there um but Ryan being back for a while allowed us to do that a number of times in a row and then that just sort of led to you know people jamming riffs like just very organic just very naturally like us all being together and Levi just starts playing a riff and Junior just starts playing drums to that riff and um, over a few months of that happening it was like oh like we're kind of writing songs again and it's all of us and could this be compromised should we because should this be compromised and and then those questions, you know, start to come about. And it's like with with the way compromise ended, um, you know, it was it was also Jordan was just such a huge part of that band. It never really came into our minds to think that we would do it without him. Mm. Um, so we all just walked away from it. But it's 
just such an unfair thing, right? That band was taken away from us. Everything we lost are our best friends, our guitar players. And we also lost like years and years and years of work that we had put into that band, right? You know what it takes to get a band off the ground and to, to make a name for yourself. So that was all just gone. And, and good or bad, I, you know, I, I see it now. I look back now and, and I think it's it's not so good that Junior and I just got right back into touring. I don't think that it was mentally, emotionally a healthy thing to do to get right back into touring to the extent that he and I did. Um, but we just, you know, we we're just super focused on, on doing our new projects and, and never thought about doing compromise again. And then COVID allowed us some time to get back together and, and, and start writing some music. So we thought... This is cool. Let's keep doing this, and and we have. Mm -hmm. So as as far as the time of recording this, um, you guys have put out uh, one single, um, which uh, I watched the music video today, and um, I think I I can't remember if it was you posting or maybe just off of the band, but essentially the music video is kind of like a dedication to Jordan, um, and um, and and it's Dan. Is it Daniel? Daniel. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of a dedication to those those two guys. Um, how did crafting a video? Because like a lot of that is shot in Finland, I'm pretty sure. So like, how did Holland, that, yeah. the creation of that was it like we shot our parts here, and then the the director did everything else, and we kind of like stitched it together? Like, talk to me about that. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. So um, a fellow named Morgan Ted who lives in the UK, he did the Tempest video. He also helped us with the Sunlifter one. So <clears throat> Misery Signals released three videos for that last record, Ultraviolet. Mm -hmm. Morgan Ted helped us with the first and the third. He's just super talented, super awesome, kind guy that I've kept in touch with. And when Compromise started talking about doing a video, it's just kind of a no-brainer to, to get in touch with him. And, you know, because he lives so far away, it is this, you know, different scenario and same thing we did with 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 sunlifter right it was like we sent him some live stuff that we recorded with ryan's cousin he mixed it in with other stuff that he did out there um this time him and i just kind of talked about the general idea he came up with this idea he said he'd go to this place called snowdonia in wales which is like you know it looks like jasper or banff it's just a you know very magical mountainous place totally um yeah, yeah. He came up with this, you know, general idea uh, and, and the rest of us thought that was fantastic. At first, we there's a version of it that where, there's, where we're not in it. And we just wondered if after being gone for so long, you know, um, was it important for them to see us? Kind of getting back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview, right? Like mm -hmm. part of me was like, no, the mystery, the mystique is awesome when you don't see us. But then there's also like, no, people do want to see you, especially a band, you know, that's come back after so long. So then we decided that we would mix some clips in. So we had our friend Brad here um, just do some stuff of us in a very similar fashion to how Misery Signals did <clears throat> this live and isolation thing that we did during COVID. Yes. So we just just very like black background, very like one light above me. Um, very still, simple, but still, very still effective. a little bit mystique, mystique there. Yeah. Um, and so in the end, we decided that we would employ those things. We mixed those clips in. So we just sent those out to him over in the UK. He mixed them in and uh, sent us back that final product and just super happy with, with how that all turned out really happy with, with song 
happy with uh, all of us being able to get back together and do it and happy with the, the, the finished product that, that Morgan was able to deliver because it's very pro looking, very cool looking. So mm-hmm. it's nice. Yeah, it definitely is. It has that pro feel. Uh, and yeah, I, I wasn't aware of the, the Mizu signals connection there to, to those music videos, but that totally checks out because those videos on its own are, are, um, are high def. Um, but I think just the storytelling aspect, like, I think that's a huge piece of that where it's like, I could, I could continually watch that and it, it, it still has that like emotion. And that's, um, I don't know. I felt connected to it when I was watching it because it made me think about all the people that, um, that I've unfortunately lost, um, either through the music scene or other things and always feeling like they're, they pop up and are with you in different scenarios in your life. So um, I just want to applaud you on on that creative art on top of uh, on top of the music itself. Um, so it's only been one song out. So what right. is on the horizon for Compromise thus far that you can talk about? Um, it's no secrets. It's just like again, Ryan. <clears throat> Ryan um, lives in Los Angeles, so we did uh, a couple shows here. We recorded four songs. And the hope is that when he comes back here, hopefully at Christmas or maybe in the new year, we write some more songs and hopefully just um, get a record out within the next year. So that's that's the goal is to, you know, write nine or 10 songs and then uh, release those. So four of them are done. Four of them are already recorded. We probably will release another one here in the next few months. Okay. Um, just kind of very, very loose plans because... Yeah, Junior had to go back to LA to to focus on his, you know, his his day job, I guess. Right. <laughs> and I started like, and I started this new job right this year, and so it's just kind of been. Um, yeah, there's no there's no grand plan. We're just kind of taking it as it comes and doing the best as we that we can. Right. Um, and on a similar token, since we're heading uh, a little bit towards the close, um, you know, Ultraviolet is almost two years it was august 2020 so a year and a half i will say so i'm sure that there's thoughts or some initial work that's being considered for new misery signals stuff i'm sure that's more of like that stuff it might be a little closer to the chest but anything you want to say to the to what's uh future wise for mystics uh i'm not certain about the future of misery signals unfortunately i don't know that uh I hope that we have another record in us. There's not been a lot of movement in that direction. So I question that if we'll be able to do it, you know, it took us last time five years to write that record. Um, as I said, you know, it's, it's very important for us to put out stuff that we believe in. And when we were kids, you know, that, that was all we focused on was just music, music, music. Now, you know, um, we put a lot of time into ultraviolet. It was just that it had to be done over sort of a four or five year period. In order for us to write another record that strong, you know, we would need a few more years. And I just, there's been not, not a lot of movement in that direction. So uh, I'm not certain that yeah. Ms. Figs is going to be able to, to do it, but we'll see. We're not, I don't know what the future holds. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I hope the future doesn't hold another global pandemic that makes it maybe like, <laughs> oh, everyone has all this free time to write new music. But um, yeah, I do. It is exciting to, you know, see the return and, you know, seeing more um, touring for Misery Signals as well as just like all those things. And uh, this has been a really great chat, Jesse. Um, one more question before we wrap up. Um, I always ask every guest that comes on the show a favorite mosh related story to end the episode so that's uh a gruesome wholesome something that happened to you something that you did or just happened at a random show that you were at whatever is the first thing to your head uh i guess i'll have also i have two so okay when we were young touring um as i said going out to the east coast and stuff you know we would see a lot of hardcore culture for the first time out there uh, one time we were with the Full Blast and we went to a place in Philadelphia called The Kill Time, which um, was run by Bob Meadows, who's the singer from Life Once Lost. Back then he wasn't the singer in Life Once Lost, he was just a dude named Robert that ran this, this club. This club was like just a hole in the wall um, <clears throat> and we went and watched. We played there, no, we played the night before and then the next night we stayed and went and watched end so or the end from toronto not end but the oh end. okay and from toronto is. yeah interesting sick okay band. like a really really sick cool band called the hmm. end um premonitions of war and zale and premonitions of war were like all full shaved head dudes with like they all had the same gang tattoo on their necks right here <laughs> They were hard, hard, hard dudes. And they were all playing triple rectifiers, like cranked. It was like one of the loudest shows I ever saw in my life. And that's the first time I saw kids doing the karate chopping and stuff like that. So yeah. it was as a Canadian kid, it was an intimidating, scary place. Like there was very, it was very dimly lit place. So it was very dark and kind of intimidating. And then there's all these dudes doing all the windmills and crazy karate chops and stuff. So <laughs> as yeah, young Canadian uh, headbanger, I was, you know, uh, pretty intimidated, but also very intrigued about that. Right. Uh, another one that always comes to mind is happened in Calgary and, and that's, um, soul skater so mike Zwazdecki, who used to put on um hoodie hardcore fest and lots of shows in calgary when we were kids he booked a show with us in the wolf note and this is in maybe 2003 or four some ms sigs is, is getting big and wolf note also is doing really well on their own and they're bringing in different kids because they're kind of this you know rock and roll kind of thing <clears throat> so one really cold winter show you know it's like december maybe january it's like minus 30 just freezing i remember we go down there with wolf note and play just an absolutely packed house at a what place is it it's just a hall it's a hall of some sort um or a legion sorry it's just absolutely packed but um my friend jay higgs gets up on on top of these speakers and and like I just see him on top of the speakers above the crowd. And I'm thinking, you like, you're not going to jump from there. You maniac. <laughs> Certainly he does. Right. And there's this girl named Sam Crimes who um, very, very uh, attractive young lady. And she would always come to shows and like a dress and like high heels and, and everything. And she'd be right in the pit. So I remember like standing side and looking and seeing Jay and being like, oh man, you're crazy. You're not going to jump from there, are you? And certainly he does. And then I remember like looking kind of peering through the crowd and seeing Sam Crime standing there in her nice dress and then fall like just all of a sudden just bang. And just like, oh, no. just like little um, 
high heels come up, like kind of, you know, jump up. And then I could just see her feet, like it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz or something like that. Just, like, I absolutely <laughs> no. knocked, like, knocked her out cold, right? And she was a smaller little uh, young girl, right? So it was a, a mean and brutal, crazy thing to do. But I mean, it all, you know, it definitely stuck with me. Yeah. Wow. I, I, the, the, the two feet under the, the sea of people, <laughs> that visual is stuck in my head for sure. Um, but yeah, those great stories. I like the first one, how you were just seeing all this just over the top violence and you're like i'm intrigued by this but also i'm in a place where i don't have the free health care so yeah. i gotta like we're in philadelphia <laughs> yeah we're in philadelphia of all places uh, well like i said uh jesse this has been a great chat um all your links to your bands and your socials be the in the description and the show notes um if there's anything you want to plug anyone you want to shout out or anything you want to send the people off with before we wrap up the floor is yours no, man. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to, happy to do it. Okay. Uh, Enjoy your Saturday. You likewise, I'll make sure the next time we cross paths, I'll make sure to hook you up with one of these. And uh, <laughs> thanks again for coming on the podcast. Awesome, man.